Well, very kind words, Dennis. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Good morning, Grace Church. How are we today? Wow, this is Mission Sunday, so uh, I already like you guys, uh, just because you're focusing on a topic that is so close to my heart today. I'm going to guess that most of us here have heard uh, the term cancel culture. Have you heard of that? Uh, it is, it's not a happy term, is it? Uh, the idea with cancel culture is that if there is someone you identify that you don't like either their beliefs or their actions, what do you do? You just get them out of your life, right? You unfriend them on Facebook or you say something perhaps negative to get other people not to pay attention. And this, this cancel culture thing, it's a real problem in our society today. But I want you to try to imagine this scenario with me. Imagine if this idea of cancel culture actually became part of the politics of some of the major international corporations, the multinational corporations today. I mean, it's one thing for some people in the community to try to cancel you, but how miserable life might be if the folks uh, behind this, these sorts of organizations could take their massive resources and sort of point them against us. Does that sound impossible? Well, actually, I'm going to tell you uh, today, uh, this happened a couple hundred years ago, long before they, they coined the term cancel culture, but this actually happened when the largest multinational corporation in the history of the world wrote these things to the British Parliament. Now, follow along with this. Imagine this is, the, this, this, this is a, uh, an excerpt from an actual letter from this group, the board of the East India Company, to the parliament, to the British Parliament. And they said this, The sending of missionaries into our eastern possessions is the, what? The maddest, most extravagant, most costly, most indefensible project which has ever been suggested by a moonstruck fanatic. You get the idea that they wouldn't be here today celebrating missions, right? <laughs> Such a scheme is, we don't even use this word anymore, pernicious, meaning that it's just bad and going to get worse for us. It's imprudent, it's useless, it's harmful, it's dangerous, it's profitless, it's fantastic. You get the idea these guys are sitting around the room saying, how many nasty words can you pile into this letter, right? It strikes against all reason and sound policy. It brings the peace and safety of our possessions into peril, this is the, oh, why, why does it even matter what this group said? Well, think about, you might not be aware of it, but who is this uh, East India Company? I already mentioned, they're uh, to this point in history, the largest multinational corporation. At one point in their history, they literally controlled one half of global trade. Wow. Not only that, but, uh, but during a good portion of their history, they governed uh, most of the subcontinent of India. In fact, one time they were unhappy with the Chinese. They raised up a private army and they defeated the Chinese government. Do these people have power? Wow. And so what is it that's making them feel so threatened that they would call upon their political allies and say, this has got to stop? And, and it was all started... Just, recent, just shortly before this letter was written by this man by the name of William Carey. You've probably heard of him. He's called today the father of modern missions. You see, we've been doing missions ever since Jesus said, go make disciples but, uh, of all nations. But it's been done in different ways through the history of the church. And here's the guy who we credit with starting what's called today the modern era of missions. And he's a very simple guy, actually, brilliant. But I'm going to say simple in the sense that 
He's uh, got a trade. He's a shoemaker in a small town in England, and he's a part-time pastor, but he's reading his Bible, and he's coming to realize we're missing something here. And so he publishes this little booklet, which unleashes this firestorm. And uh, I love the title. And by the way, I've only got a few of the words of the title because one of the cool things about these old books is by the time you've read their 100-word title, you kind of have a summary of the whole book, okay? But we can go even shorter with that. What does it say here? An inquiry. So all he's saying is, guys, could we have a conversation about this? An inquiry into the obligations. Do we actually have a responsibility An inquiry into the obligations of, what does it say, Uh, of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. Now, heathen is just what they, they, they sort of, they called everybody who wasn't a believer at this time, right? So do we have a responsibility to actually think, to plan, to pray, to set up budgets, to recruit people, to train, to send them out, to have some sort of plan And this booklet and the firestorm that it begins to unleash, because soon a whole lot of people would be going out into missions, actually shook to the foundation this massive company, thinking this is going to threaten our interest. And what I think is so fascinating about it is undoubtedly every member of the board of directors of this corporation was was a church-going, respectable member of their community. But they're saying... There's something threatening about this idea. And it wasn't just uh, businessmen. It wasn't just politicians. But it even was members of his own church because he was part of a small denomination. And a few years earlier, uh, in a gathering of pastors, he wanted to talk about this. And what did one of the most distinguished guys there say? Sit down, young man, because when God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he'll do it without your help or mine. See, now you understand a little bit better the motive behind his book, an inquiry into our obligations. Is just Jesus going to take care of this? Or is there a responsibility that we have? What's the real source of this controversy? Well, it's a passage that really had fallen into disuse. You almost think that they maybe blotted it out of their Bibles at this point in history. But you, I trust, know it well. So we've been sitting for a while. Let's just stand up and let's read this together. I should have asked permission. Are they allowed to read? Are they allowed to talk here? You guys allowed to? Okay. All right. And you're you allowed to stand. Okay. So stand up. But read together with me what probably a lot of you can say from memory, but let's read it together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can have a seat now, but think about it. Uh, William Carey is saying, does this really apply to us today? And many people at that point in history had decided this is something fulfilled a long time ago, and we have no responsibility with it. I want to look at that a little bit more closely and take a fresh, uh, perhaps, uh, few minutes to look at this today with you. You maybe know it really well, but would you join me as we sort of take a journey? And I want to focus on uh, what I consider to really be the core of this. And it, it actually has to do in the Greek language with where the word all appears. And I find it interesting that the word all appears four times in this. Okay. And so let's go with the first one. You see all authority, all nations, all that I've commanded you, and all the days or always, as it's, uh, as it's translated here, 
But let's focus on that idea of all authority. This passage comes at the end of the book of Matthew, which as all of you I'm sure know, comes as the first book in our New Testament. And what's so interesting about Matthew is this is the book where the Apostle Matthew wants to make it very clear that Jesus is king and deserves, therefore, to be worshipped and obeyed. First book in the New Testament, even the first verses, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And so right from the beginning, Matthew is saying, Jesus Christ, who walked here on earth, who now we know is in heaven, but he actually can tie his roots all the way back to Abram and the promises made to him when God said to Abram, I'm going to bless you so that through your descendants and through your seed, everyone in the world will be blessed. So he's tied into Abram. But he's also tied into David, who became the king and to whom God gave other promises. There will always be someone that's a descendant of yours as king. In fact, this, this person is going to become the eternal king. And so from the beginning, Matthew is building this case that the Jesus he's going to talk about really has some important roots and will ultimately become the king of all. And as you go through the book of Matthew, you see time and time again that Jesus is demonstrated as the one who is speaking like the king. He's acting like the king. He is healing people. He shows power like the king. We even come to this great section that you know as the Sermon on the Mount, where in reality... Jesus is saying, I want you to know what the rules of my kingdom are going to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Uh, Not those who try to pretentiously put themselves forward. And by the way, you've heard that it said, if someone does this and you respond in this way, but not in my kingdom. And as we follow the book through to its conclusion, what ultimately happens is people are attracted initially to Jesus and his kingdom, but ultimately what do they do to him? They reject him, they crucify him, and they figure now we're finished with this guy for three days, right? And then he is powerfully raised from the dead because even his death and burial and resurrection are all a part of God's eternal plan to demonstrate who Jesus is. God himself become man who ultimately now has become our Savior, our Lord, and our King. And so with that little bit of context reminding you of that, now we come to Matthew 28, the last verses in Matthew's book. But I left out a couple of uh, verses at the beginning here that often get skipped over, and I think they're really important. So Jesus is now ready to return to heaven. He has gathered his 11 apostles They go to this mountain where Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. Now, men and women, this is essential to understanding Matthew chapter 28. Because as they stand before Jesus, what happens to their knees? Their knees get weak, and they fall down and say, you really are the king. And how does Jesus respond? By saying, no, no, no. He says, yes. And who else has this right to say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Brothers and sisters, if we want to take the journey that Jesus has before us today, it begins with the recognition of the authority of Jesus Christ. And if you are a person who has never seen the Jesus that they saw, and how do you know you really saw him? Because your knees got weak and you fell down and you said, who am I? Whoa, am I? I'm I'm undone then you're only at the very beginning of this journey. 
All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. But the passage continues, uh, and so does the story of William Carey. So he publishes his book in 1792. By 1793, he's on a ship to India trying to live out his convictions, takes his wife and family with him, and they're going to live there for the rest of his life trying to live out the implications of the rest of the alls. Because once he understood who Jesus is, then in his particular case, it meant going to India. And he was willing to do that. So this is in the late 1700s, early 1800s. What about our family of churches? You belong to a, 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 a family of churches regionally and nationally and internationally that today we call the Karis Alliance. And years ago, we were in Germany, and we became uh, uh, religious refugees as we were chased out of there and came to the U.S., and so we're establishing our denomination, our family of churches here. And so where are we at in relationship to this story with William Carey and what's happening? Because he's there, and then on the, other, uh, on the side of the Atlantic, this, uh, this uh, virus, in a positive sense of the word, right? This, uh, this idea of, of recapturing the Great Commission now comes to our side, and, and some folks in the U.S. then, this is the commissioning of the first eight missionaries from North American churches that go out. And so this is happening, but what's happening in our group? Well, uh, we are caught up in the wave, early 1800s, through the 1800s, this wave of, of migration to the West, and so we're leaving farms and, and going with many other people out westward. We're establishing uh, ourselves out there. The church group is growing. There are more churches, more people, primarily through having big families, okay, but also through inviting our neighbors to come in. But this was not a time when we, as a family of churches, had a vision for the world. Some voices pop up here and there saying, what about the Great Commission? But we were kind of sleepy-eyed as far because we felt we had such a big challenge in front of us. And this is one of the biggest problems that faces churches all around the globe, thinking we've got to get our own act together first before we can talk about engaging in the world, you see. And there were in, internal disputes, and there were these kind of issues. That's a, that's a real tool of Satan. If he can get us focusing more on the style of music, if he can get us focused more on what she said, what he said, and why wasn't I respected, then all this stuff about the authority of Jesus, it sort of gets put to the side for a while. Uh, but the good news is, uh, God raises up a man among us. And I want to tell you a little bit of his story today. His name is Jacob Castle. He was born in 1849, in Montgomery County, which at that point was outside of Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia, by the way, so go Eagles and that stuff. If any, No, I shouldn't say that here, should I? Okay. Phillies. I can say Phillies, right? No? Okay. I, I forget that. Erase all that. Take it off the tape. Okay. But anyway, he, uh, he's uh, born outside of Philadelphia. By age 24, he gets married. He, he migrates into the city, and he relocates and becomes the part owner, the half owner of this business called the Fairhill Terracotta Works. You can see his name there. And so he's a businessman. I want you to get this idea. He is an entrepreneur. He's a young guy. He's putting everything on the line here to try to get a business going for him and for his family. And uh, shortly after doing that, he joins the Grace Brethren Church there in Philadelphia, First Brethren Church. So from our family, we used to call ourselves that. So he's joining one of our churches. And just to give you an idea of this guy, and we didn't know this for years. We just discovered this a couple years ago. Here's a 64-page catalog of the products that his business produced. And we've discovered that he's selling these things in London and in Paris, as well as across the country. 
This guy actually was, was really well-known in this whole area. Now, you look at that today and say, that's kind of interesting, but this was popular back then to buy these sorts of things for your garden and for your house and so forth. So here is a genuine entrepreneur who also is learning to love Jesus, and but running his business, caring for his family and all the rest. He's a busy guy, but he knows he's supposed to be involved in, in the world in some way. And so initially his church says, well, why don't you run the church library? Now, that might not sound like a big job to you guys, but, but actually, at that point in history, Philadelphia didn't even have a public library that was free, and so churches like ours would gather books and make them available to the community because that's where they could have access, the ministry that they would have. And after that, he got involved in Sunday schools. Now, we think of Sunday schools, our kids coming here, but that's not what it was then. That was going out in the community, gathering many kids together, many of whom worked in factories all week, teaching them reading, writing, arithmetic, loving on them, teaching them the Bible. So he's getting involved in this sort of stuff as well. But toward his late 40s, he started to get a reputation for annoying people. Okay? Now I'm going to tell you why he annoyed so many people. And, and I, I, of course, I never knew him, but, but I sort of get the impression that if you saw Jacob Castle coming in the distance, you'd be saying, oh, I got an appointment, or where's the bathroom, or whatever, because... He just got on one topic. You know anybody like that? And he just stayed focused on it all the time. And guess what that topic was that gripped his life? All nations. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he said, why isn't our church involved in this? 1900 was kind of a critical time because he gathered at our national conference. There were over 2,000 delegates there, and they gave him a little bit of time to speak, and they all knew what he was going to talk about. But at one point, he says this. He says, listen, men and women, we've reached a period of history in which God's dear children believe the prophecies and feel the force of the what? The commission. Now he's talking about the Great Commission. We're in it. Other people are paying attention to this. With the world open, with the means of communication and transportation developed, what was he thinking about? This is great. 1900, the steamship, the telegraph. You know, says, but, but for somebody who understands Jesus in his heart for the world, today is always a day of more opportunities than yesterday, you see. And he says, we have opportunities. We have men and money in abundance. Well, they had no money yet, but he knew that it was out there somewhere, right? And the promise of the presence of Jesus to whom all power is committed in heaven and earth, surely the outlook is altogether hopeful. Opportunities are almost limitless. Let's do it. And to make a, a really interesting kind of longer story short enough for this morning, ultimately they said to him, if you're interested in this mission stuff, great. We got business to talk about here. Anybody want to go with Jacob Castle? 52 people got up and walked out. And 2,000 people sat there so they could debate whether or not to print a hymn book for the next couple hours, something that was never printed. But those 53 people started a mission, the mission of our churches, today called Encompass World Partners. Now, there's a lot of other great missions we partner with, but this is the mission that our churches started. And I just want to give you a quick tour through history here. So in 1900, this were only in the U.S., and by 1920, we're starting to send some people out. And I'm going to go quick here. By the 40s, you can see we're getting into some other places. And you also see there's some places we went to and didn't be, we weren't able to last for different reasons because it's always in missions two steps forward, one step backward, two steps forward. And you get into uh, the year 2000 and 2020 and so forth. But today, these are countries that have been impacted 
Men and women, 95% of our global movement today would trace their spiritual ancestry back to Jacob Castle, the businessman from Philadelphia, who said, I actually believe what this says. It's time for us to do something. Now, I, I'm picturing countries to you here. We've got to uh, make sure that we understand a little bit of good missiology here, okay? The, stu- the understanding of missions, the study of missions. But Jesus actually didn't say, go make disciples of all countries. There's about 230 countries in the world, and uh, most of them actually are not even more than 200 years old. So countries is the way we organize our world today. But this is not the way we organize the world through history. Jesus is actually using the word ethne, and you know that because we get ethnic from it. What he's talking about is I want you to go not just to all the countries of the world. They didn't even exist at that point. But I want every ethnic group. So when we looked at this amazing story of this, these folks in, was it Micronesia? Or where, where they were? Sorry, I'm not remembering that. But see, they're trying to help us get to the last of the people groups. And so the responsibility that we have is to actually help the gospel make sense to every worldview, every different language group. And now when you try to picture that, the world looks a whole lot more complicated, doesn't it? So how are we doing as a, as a movement? Well, I don't know how many people groups that we as a, as a, as a movement, Karis Fellowship, are touching right now. But I can at least zero in on the Central African region, and you can see some numbers there. There's 1,216 ethnic groups that we are either directly working in or right next to us that, that, are, that are, we and our partners are targeting there. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all ethnic groups. And we can't rest until the all is done. Now, fortunately, it's not just us. We're a part of the body of Christ, and there's lots of other people involved in this. And so uh, to get, today, as we look throughout the world, and as uh, certain people try to do the stats here, we figure out there's probably about 7,000 of these groups where we're still today, there may be a presence of Jesus, but it's not strong enough for them to really have their own churches and multiply and so forth. So there's still a lot of mission work to be done. And so we, we, we sort of uh, evaluate that through this concept of people groups today. Over 17,000 ethnic groups total, though. And I want to encourage you that two-thirds of the missionaries that you send through Encompass World Partners were the cross-cultural missions arm of the Karis Fellowship. Okay, so there's connections with you. Two-thirds of our missionaries live directly among least-reached peoples. Now, I'll tell you what the other third are dedicated to here in just a minute. But we really believe in this second all. But where are you at on this journey again? Remember, you begin the journey by looking up and seeing who Jesus is, and then what becomes weak? The knees become weak. You fall down. You worship. You say, all authority really has been given to you. And he says, don't just stay on your knees. Get up and go. Now, I love your mission's theme here. It's around the corner, around the world, right? So whether you're going across the street or whether you're going to the extremes of the world, we can all be participating in this. So you worship, and then you get up, and he says, now now I commission you, you're to go into all the world. And these people groups, they just have to matter to us because they matter enormously to Jesus Christ. And he said, all authority is mine. So what matters to me needs to matter to you. Well, it continues. Not only that, but... uh, I want you all authority I have, and I want you to go to all the nations, but I want you to teach them to observe or to obey how much? Everything. 
And not just know these things, but to actually have your life transformed by them. That's a pretty big challenge. So we first were connected with the church here when my wife and I and our kids were missionaries in the country of Argentina. Okay, so we went in 1987. And not long after that, we met Pastor Jeff Thornley and we met Nathan over here. Yeah, I knew Nathan back when, or whatever sort of a thing. Okay, so some, total mobilization, uh, support ministries, and building lots of buildings for churches getting started. And Nathan handled the U.S. side, and I was responsible for the Latin America side. So we got these connections going back there. But in the year 1999, our board of directors said, we'd like you to return from Argentina and become the director of the mission. And that's an interesting story in and of itself. But I want to just point out to this part, and excuse me, I just went ahead too, too many here, but let me go back. So it was rather traumatic, more than we thought it would be, bringing our kids back who had really grown up in Argentina. So our twin boys were four. Uh, Mark, their younger brother, was not even a year old. Our daughter, Melissa, was born in Argentina. And we just thought, this isn't that big a deal, right? I mean, this isn't the U.S., their home country, but we discovered after getting back here that they didn't really understand a whole lot about America. Now, so our, my son, let's just talk about my son, Mark. He was 13, so he's going to seventh grade, and we're arriving back in December. What a nasty time to come back to the U.S., right? And, uh, and we're in, in northern Indiana, and he's getting ready for his first day of school in January, going to junior high, okay, and fortunately, a loving church came around him, and they had people helping him out. So I think great youth pastor. Praise God for youth pastors and youth workers. They're just such a blessing to us. Thank you, guys, those of you who do that. But he's getting ready for his first day, and we're super nervous as parents. We drop him off at the huge you know, middle school sort of thing. And uh, when he comes home, we say, how, how was the day, Mark? You know, Because we're kind of nervous about this. And what we were most nervous about was lunchtime. Because isn't that like the most awkward time in a junior hire's life, right? Going to lunch. Who are you going to sit with? You're going to be ignored, all that sort of stuff. Did you sit with him? Oh, yeah, the kids from church came and sat with me at the table. I thought, this is really good. I said, how'd it go? He said, well, Dad, I'll tell you this. I understood every word they said. I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. Now, I want you to think with me. What was he saying here? See, he looked like he fit. And he spoke like he fit. But this was not the world he grew up in. So whatever seventh graders were talking about back then, he had no idea what it was because he grew up in Argentina in a radically different world. That helps us illustrate the challenge of teaching them to observe all things. Men and women, it is not enough even just to get the Bible and good literature into other languages because it's not just a matter of getting the words translated. You have to understand the culture. You need to incarnate. You need to have people living there. Technology is helping us enormously in missions, but it will never, ever replace the person. Jesus didn't just send an emissary. He had to come himself and live here. And missions will always be done. And by the way, thank you for every other help that's given to us. But it's always going to require people who go there and who live there long enough to understand it. Because we train our people to understand the Bible. That's one culture. We train them to understand the culture they grew up in because a lot of us don't understand why we do what we do. And then they got to learn the third culture, which is the one they're going to minister in. 
And they're always balancing things between these cultures. And, and so we've really invested so heavily in the last 20 years to training our people uh, so much more deeply to know what does it mean not just to say to people what did Jesus say, but to explain it and to live it out before them in such a way that they become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So I mentioned two-thirds of our people are among the least reached. What's the other third doing? Helping teach to obey all things I've commanded you among those where we've been at for a while. And we've been at it since 1900. So let me give you some illustrations of your world. This is the extension of your church around the world. And, you know, I could have picked so many different photos. These just happen to be ones I all happen to be, you know, involved in. But up on the upper left-hand side, that looks a bit different. That's Cambodia reaching out into an extremely Buddhist background country where the name... I was there once, and, I, and we said to a woman, uh, have you ever heard of Jesus? And she looked a little confused. She said, I, I think he lives two blocks down. She wasn't going to be embarrassed, but she'd never heard the name before. How do you get started there? And we have this community center where we host university students because we really want to go after them. By the way, 13 of them just got baptized about four weeks ago. So this is so cool. Praise God. But what are they breaking out of? Tradition and expectations of family. So teaching them to obey all I've commanded you is going to look different than it does in Brazil. That's on the right-hand side there. Here I'm meeting with key leaders who are wrestling with how can we take our churches that have been around for about 60 years now and they've reproduced and how can we train people for the future and keep expanding? And now they're getting ready to send their first missionaries to Turkey. That's so cool, you see, because it, today is not the, the day of missions from the West to the rest. Today is the time of missions from anywhere to everywhere. And so that's the cool thing that we get a part of. And Dennis mentioned I have a next chapter in my ministry. The first chapter was Latin America. Second chapter is with uh, the U.S. leading our ministry. My third chapter is actually helping all this happen. To help the Global Caris Alliance to get missionaries from anywhere to everywhere. So we're excited about that. But that doesn't start for another year. I can talk to you about that offline. But Brazil, that's pretty cool. Let's go to another part of the world. Upper left-hand corner, I'm with a guy by the name of Paul. What a great name for an apostolic guy there in Africa. And below that, he's having me meet with his 90 church planters, which are out in the extreme east of the country of Chad in Central Africa. And whenever I see these folks, I think some of you I'm not going to see again because you're probably going to get killed for what you're doing here. They're out among the least reached to the least reached. It may not be the ends of the earth, but you can see it there from there. It's right over there, okay? So they're really out there. And, uh, and so here they are. These are the people we're working with. By the way, they all trace their spiritual ancestry back to Jacob Castle, you see, because someone said it's time. It's time for us to move. Uh, there on the right, though, I'm in another part of Africa, in the city of Bangui in Central African Republic, preaching that morning to 3,000 people in a congregation there, which is one of 75 Karis Fellowship churches just in that city. There's 3,800 of our churches just in that country. This is kind of, but, you know, the story of what it took to get that started. Uh, but 100 years later, look at the fruit that we get to see. This is the teaching to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you. Upper left-hand corner, down in Argentina, these folks, when they approach leadership training, they do it very informally. Uh, below that, you see a building which represents two seminaries and eight Bible institutes in, in Africa. They do it in a formal way. Whether you're doing this formally or informally, we've got work ahead of us because Jesus says 
You see me, you fall at your knees, I have all authority. Go now, make disciples, but men and women, teach them to obey all I've commanded you. And that requires staying power. You see, it is not enough to just go out there and spread some seed. We need to work that garden long enough to see some fruit come from it. And one of the great, they, had, they invited me to come talk to our new recruits. We're sending people in a bunch of places right now. And the one woman said, what's, uh, I've heard you say it before, the lady who's leading the training down in Atlanta. She said, tell them about staying power. And I said, that's what I most would like to tell you new guys. Most of the places in the world, now I'll say all the places in the world, where we're seeing the greatest fruit today is because people not only went, but they stayed. You see, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded is not one day or one year or whatever. And we've got to stay at the task long enough. And it's those countries now that are sending out missionaries that we get to partner with in many parts of the globe. You see? So teach them. Stay long enough. So if you've been supporting some missionaries for some years, you think, well, has anything happened there? Well, ask them. Let them share. But recognize that this is a long-term investment when we talk about the alls of the Great Commission. Look up, bow down, go out, and stay out until they look up, they bow down, and they go out. Wow. Well, I said there's four alls, and so let's get to the fourth one. Jesus said, Behold, I'm going to be with you all the days to the end of the age. Now, this is one of those verses in Scripture that's so sort of pulled out of context. We see it on bumper stickers. I'm going to be with you all. Jesus will be with us all the ways, all the days and so forth. But this is a promise, and I think it's a special promise to those who say, you know, I'm going, I, I recognize the authority of Jesus, and I'm going to be sent out. He says, you cannot go where I have not already been. You cannot go out faster than me. You can, cannot go out farther than me. You cannot go to a place that I will not be with you. And men and women, we need that promise as we approach the world with the great news of Jesus Christ. Early in our history, you know, I said we started as a mission in 1900. By 1909, we were ready to send our first missionaries to Argentina. They picked Argentina because they studied Latin America and said, we think this is the hardest place to serve. Whether they're right or not, I don't know, but I like their spirit. And they went down there and did different kinds of methods. I remember reading one thing where they would go to different farms and sell Bibles at reduced cost because people didn't have Bibles, even though it was a Catholic country, and discovered that the priest sent somebody after them to buy the Bibles back. That feels a bit like opposition, but it gets worse. Then they show up at their rented meeting facility to find the dead body of one of their early converts thrown in front of it as the message was, we don't want you here. Praise God they stayed. Because that country today has sent missionaries with us to Chad, to Mexico, to Chile, to Uruguay, to Mozambique, which is with a partnership. But you see, they stayed. God was with them. How about uh, Africa? So in 1918, we're ready to send our first team to Africa. And uh, during the first 15 years that we're sending people to the very heart of Africa, we are burying one out of every five people that we sent. And instead of people saying, whoa, that's too dangerous, more and more people said, I have to go because i got to take their place. May God give us that spirit today. We live in a world, that, especially a country where safety is like the main thing. Men and women, nobody is going to be in heaven going around saying, I was safer than you were. Right? 
So they went out. You want to know some of that story? I captured it in a book, and this is back there. I'd be happy to get you a copy of that. But it's an amazing story of these folks that are out there, an inspiring story for us today. Uh, today we have staff that live under the constant threat of expulsion. In fact, one of our beautiful families just kicked out of an Islamic country just two months ago. We're trying to figure out how to get them back in. What a traumatic thing. I meet with believers in certain parts of the world. What's that scar on your face? My parents threw oil on, burning oil on me because I profess Jesus. And I look and a tear is in my eye and I just think, but this is worth it because they're smiling because they have found something in Jesus Christ. And I can say to them, you know what? Jesus will be with you all the days. Why don't you join us in this incredible journey of the Great Commission? You know, Jesus doesn't promise us success in human terms, but he does promise his presence. And with his presence, it's enough. The past 2,000 years of mission history, and I've only told you a little bit of the most recent chapter called the Modern Era of Missions, but it's a story of battles lost. It's a story of battles won. It's a story of injuries and casualties along the way. But we're letting the king tell us how he wants his kingdom run. And he said, go. All authority has been given to me. Why don't you go? Well, these four alls sort of combine together to make what we consider what we call the Great Commission today. But I'm going to go back to this passage because you may have noticed I skipped over a phrase. And it's a phrase that has bothered a lot of people. And it bothered me until I took some time to really take a deep dive into it. Because they see him, they worship him. But what's it say? But some doubted. That doesn't feel like it should have a place here, right? Now, the word doubted in the Greek language only appears twice in the Bible. Those two times are in the book of Matthew. And the other time is when Peter is getting out of the boat to walk on the water. And he says, can I come walk on it? Jesus says, sure. And he steps out, and it's like amazing. And then he wavers. He doubts. What's he do? He takes his eyes off Jesus and starts looking at the circumstances, and he starts to sink. And it's the same word that's used here when Matthew describes what was happening in front of Jesus. Another way that we can translate that word is we can say it's a crossroads. And this, I think, really captures the key point for us this morning. I can talk with you about the authority of Jesus. Yeah, that sounds cool. I agree. I can talk with you about have you worshipped him and, and are you willing to be sent by him and, and, and to, to stay at the ministry he gives you long enough and to embrace the fact that he will be with you all the days. But you see, we're going to be constantly distracted by other things. It's easy for us to say, what's wrong with the board of the British East India Company? I mean, don't these guys who pretend to be Christians? But they're saying prophets are more important than people. Or a government that they write it to that says the safety and peace of our, of, our, uh, of our dominion here, the British Empire, is more important than the Great Commission. Or even the local church where the pastor says, sit down, young man, let God worry about that. Who's thinking, I don't want to upset things here. We've got a good thing going. And men and women, it is a constant temptation to be distracted from this. That some doubt, that some waver, that you stand at the crossroads and say, that one just feels like too much. And Jesus says, don't you remember that all authority has been given to me? Once again, no one in eternity 
will be running around high-fiving one another because they took the easiest path or because they, you know, because they were the most comfortable. It will be these stories that we celebrate throughout eternity. So as your church takes a renewed commitment around the corner, around the world, uh, Jesus is inviting you to take that journey with them. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we worship you this morning because you are worthy of worship. Jesus, your son, is worthy of worship. And we desire for him to be honored and glorified in this day. What is the crossroads that we are at today? Is it time to bow the knee? May that happen. Is it time to be willing to go out across the street or around the world? May we take the right direction. Or perhaps uh, there are folks here who just need encouragement to stay a bit longer in the task that you've given to them. And thank you that we're given this assurance that you will be with us all the days to the end of this age. I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.